0: Right now, um, my MRI results don't look good. I'm My brain and my spinal cord are ridden with lesions. Um, it leaves my doctors um, confused and a bit curious as to why I'm walking and doing as well as I am. We, we don't have enough information in life to say that our brains aren't capable of healing. Yeah.
1: Crystal, thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you for having me. So this is an audio-only podcast, and because of that, you can't see Crystal, but I can paint a bit of a picture. Um, At 23 years old, she became the executive director of a foundation that uh, that has given millions of dollars to fund research into non-pharmaceutical treatments for neurological disorders. She's also beautiful, um, blonde, effervescent, super athletic, basically the kind of like cool girl that you might have looked at in high school and thought, like, how do you make this look so effortless? In other words, she's not the kind of person that you would look at from the outside and think that she has been through a life-shattering tragedy. Certainly not someone who seems like they're still going through it in some ways. But that's the story that we're telling today. So, Crystal, I was wondering if you could take us back to when you were 18 years old. This is 2005? Right? Yeah. And you were kind of a big deal.
0: Yeah, but I I wasn't that beautiful high school person. <laughs> really? When I was really young, people asked me if I was a boy or a girl. <laughs> I kind of grew into a girl. <laughs> is but that I because? Was, I was definitely a tomboy. Is boy. it because you were a tomboy and yeah. you had like enormous quads? Yeah. 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 Nicknamed Quadzilla. Yeah. <laughs> So speed skating was, I was like the classic jock of high school and, um, it didn't matter that I wasn't, um, kind of girly and wearing fashionable clothes and stuff because I could hang out with the guys and relate to them on a sport level. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a cool upbringing and I loved wearing the brand of athlete and I played it up. Like that was my, my social identity and I loved it. So Um, it, it allowed me to have a, a, a bigger group and friend circle outside of the small town of Beaumont, Alberta, where I grew up as well.
1: But, and you were a nationally competitive, you were like a nationally ranked speed skater, weren't you?
0: Yeah, I was. In short track or? Well, that's actually the peak of my career. I started out in short track, um, and I got to travel the world, miss a lot of high school and represent Canada as one of the top juniors. Um, Hungary was where the junior Canadians were. And that was really the start to what looked like was going to be a very successful career in speed skating. And up until that point, um, getting to speed skate at like a national level, before that, I was always winning North American and Canadian championships for my age categories as I grew up. So I was one of the genetically gifted, very self-driven, and I just loved speed skating. It was my everything. So um, it kind of came naturally to me.
1: And you were being... Uh, touted as a potential Olympic hopeful as well. Yeah, definitely.
0: I feel like the, the red carpet was rolled in front of me, like, here here's the pathway to the Olympics. Just don't screw up.
1: <laughs> and then fate sort of intervened. Yeah,
0: yeah. And it, and it intervened really quickly in a matter of three days. I went from one of the top speed skaters in Canada to not walking. And it overnight, um, I woke up the next morning and I struggled to walk thinking that maybe I pushed it too hard in the weight room. And then I felt my legs and realized, actually, no, this is different. This isn't just more like stiff muscles. This is me losing sensation in my legs. And then I went to the washroom. I could hear myself, but I couldn't feel anything. And then I was like, "Uh uh-oh, I need to do something about this. Roommate rushed me to the hospital. And over the next three days, I had a progressive... Um, numbness from my chest to my toes. Um, I lost complete bladder control. um, And I started to develop double vision. And so I went through a battery of tests and it was on the third day when the neurologist came in. And this is a really weird thing that they did and I hope they don't have this practice anymore in the hospital, but they wrote a list on a whiteboard in my hospital room of all the possibilities and it was like ms was at the top and so i just interpreted that as the worst case scenario and i literally watched them start erasing all of the other possibilities and then when they came into my room they said you have ms and and so my reaction was more confusion because i was like well what is ms and i had i'd had coincidentally done ms bike tours but it was cuz my old gym teacher had ms and i didn't even know what ms was or or yeah, what, what it meant if I had it. And then I, I wondered like, do, is this a death sentence? Like do I have two weeks to live? But, but, so it was mostly just confusion, but then they told me what I think is the most terrifying news I've ever had, which was you'll probably never speed skate again. And so that was, that was something I knew that I wanted. And, and that was my only reality. And I, and I actually think that that's what played to my advantage because I didn't believe them, (laughs) like not speed skating wasn't part of my reality. So for them to tell me that at that invincible teenager time in your life, um, I think I was lucky that, you know, I hadn't dealt with a whole lot of adversity up until that point, not too bad anyways. So I was pretty like ruthlessly, um, a believer that I I was invincible. I was, I was a kid and I was, everything, everyone told me I was going to be a top speed skater. So it was pretty drilled
1: into my head. So I just want to back up briefly. You were you're diagnosed with MS at 18, and can you explain what is MS and what is the what's the prognosis generally if you're if you're so diagnosed? We we really don't
0: know, <laughs> technically, but the assumption is that our nervous system is attacked by our immune system, so we think it's an autoimmune condition. Um, there's some research out here now that talks about it being um, closely related to Alzheimer's um, and um, that would be a whole different um, prognosis and and understanding of how MS exists or or happens. Um, But they also don't really know your prognosis because you have relapsing remitting MS where you go into relapse, say your immune system attacks your nervous system and you have a variety of um, options of how you're going to respond physically. And it can be as minor as um, one of my relapses have been I lost I had numbness in half my tongue for a few days to, you know, I lost feeling and bladder control and double vision over three days. So it's very unpredictable. Um, and that and you go into relapse and then you come out of it, They say 50-plus percent of relapsing-remitting patients develop progressive MS, which means you go into relapse and you don't recover, and you eventually just start to debilitate until you die, but you can still live a pretty long life. And then the third um, is primary progressive MS, and that's when you you never do get to recover from your relapses. I didn't really dig into the details of all that, but I, I learned very quickly how scary it is to go ask Dr. Google when you're by yourself and it's past 9 PM um, and start asking questions about your health. It, it paints a pretty ugly picture and For some reason, Dr. Google always kind of goes to worst-case scenario, so that's pretty scary. But um, thankfully, I knew a couple of people with MS who seemed to be doing mostly okay, but I hadn't met many people who with MS or anyone with MS who was an elite-level athlete.
1: So how did this change your view
0: of what your future was going to be? This is the funny thing, is it didn't really change my view. If anything, it made me just more... It made me pursue um, speed skating, I would say in an unhealthy way at the beginning, because I had a lot of the typical reaction kind of emotions like anger, fear, frustration. I asked why me a lot. I felt like I didn't deserve that. I felt rejected. Um, and then that it's funny, you feel those feelings and it's almost like you, re- you attract to that. And I was using a lot of negative emotion to get back to skating. You felt rejected. Yeah. Well, I felt rejected by my body. I felt rejected by the national team because I made the assumption that I was just n- nobody now because I wasn't. I wasn't going to be a hopeful for the 2010 Olympics. If anything, I'm a liability on the team. My boyfriend at the time, and I'm reminding everyone that I'm I'm a teenager <laughs> with teenage emotions and hormones, and so my boyfriend at the time. Um, and started dating uh, or cheated on me with one of my best friends um, and probably who became
1: the next speed skating star. So so, and your boyfriend was also a very competitive speed skater. Yeah. You guys, you described it to me once as you guys were like the king and queen of
0: speed skating. It was like prom king, prom queen, because we were both like North American or Canadian championships at the same time one, one year. And so, you know, we were both these... These people who um, were popular in the sport in our community and it just seemed like we should date. And I mean, I don't think it was the, the best relationship ever, but it was my first. And so it felt real and it felt like you're everything when you're a teenager. <laughs> and so to be rejected by your body, your sport, your boyfriend, your best one of your best friends, and then... Um, and then have to go back into the environment that it's, first of all, feels physically different when I was trying to get back into skating. But it looked very different because now my boyfriend is dating my friend and I don't talk to either of them anymore. So like locker room conversations didn't happen. There was just awkward silence and I was always taught to take the high road and, you know, it's not about don't try to... Um, egg their house or (laughs) say mean things it's just did you did you think did you
1: think about egging their house though
0: i i yeah like i'm a normal human being (laughs) i thought all the things like I, i swear um there was like every song on the radio felt like it was written for me just like what happens when you have a go through a breakup or something but it's funny how i don't know what was more distracting um ms was more distracting from having to deal with a breakup and your friend <laughs> betraying you kind of and or if it was the ms and that the friend betraying you and your boyfriend cheating on you was a distraction for having an i don't know which one was worse or if anything i i almost feel like they neutralized each other like it was so much to to handle as a teenager and um I definitely talked more about my relationship with my sports psychologist than I did about (laughs) speed skating, Um, but it was helpful and it played into my performance in sports, so necessary.
1: It seems like one of the more challenging things about this experience was that a number of the core sources of your identity were taken away from you in a very, very short period of time. Mm -hmm. What was the hardest thing in going through all of this? I think the hardest thing in going through this is the emotion of
0: jealousy, I had to face jealousy because I had a girl who was more attractive than me now to my boyfriend at the time. I was jealous that everyone else in the speed skating community, from what I saw in a sort of through a a selfish framework, is like no one is as in a bad situation as I am, and they all get to speed skate and compete, and, and, um, and then they don't have to deal with all this stuff on the side they get to just skate like how I used to and so I think jealousy is maybe the worst it's the worst emotion to have to deal with but I'm happy I did because it made me face it head-on and eventually it taught me how to be forgiving and forgiveness was sort of the antidote to jealousy and it is a, it's like a power <laughs> to have, to to feel true forgiveness um that didn't happen for years But when it did, I mean, it ended up being one of the biggest tools and gifts I ever had in my life.
1: The jealousy and the resentment and the feeling above all, the feeling of injustice. I think if you allow those things to take hold, and if you give them a foothold, that's the most corrosive about these types of experiences. How did you come to a point where you could forgive? I came to a point where I could forgive
0: the universe for the the situation that I was in, and I think that was through my my parents laugh laugh when I when I say this, and they kind of roll their eyes because I call it tough love. And I mean, my parents—if you knew them—they're like very loving, charismatic, charming people. You would never think of them as tough love. But what I mean by that is, they didn't indulge in me feeling sorry for myself. If I was ever going down a negative spiral, they would. You know, remind me to focus on what I do have, not what I don't have. Focus on what I can do, not what I can't do. And by giving me that tool, I, I was able to focus on the right things. One of the, the, my biggest struggles, I think, from my parents' tough love was... I would see my dad joking with my ex-boyfriend at a competition the same way that he did when we were dating and I'm kind of like dad (laughs) you understand like what he did to me right or or you know or to the, the friend and it was very hard for me to watch it and I remember talking to him and he said crystal you like you need to forgive them you need to forgive them and and it was so fresh when he was telling me this and i actually admire the fact that he told me that because it was fresh for him too and i know that whatever i'm going through my parents are probably going through it 500 times worse so it, it took a a really big person like my dad to um, be nice to them and rather than avoid them and lower himself to a level that he doesn't admire he played the he took the higher ro- road and he took the harder road and he he actually gave them love and kindness and joked with them. And, and that confused me for literally years. And it wasn't until probably, I'm embarrassed to say five years, but it was probably about five years I, I had like an epiphany. I was on a plane and had just come from a stay get in Hawaii. What a privileged situation. <laughs> so, of course, I was just on cloud nine. And I remember coming home and having a wave of emotion, of understanding what it was. And it's not like I thought about that situation very often because I was over it and I was already, you know, dating someone else or whatever. Um, but for some reason I had this rush and I realized that 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 feeling was true forgiveness. And I wrote a long letter to my friend and I just told her that I think she's amazing. I'm so proud of her. Um, I see all the good that I always saw um, when we were friends and I forgive her and it's okay. And amazing how good I felt afterwards I felt empowered Um, I think she probably felt the same way and now it's like not awkward and it's fun and she's supportive and her family's supportive and it's a beautiful thing that
1: happened and it's interesting because it's the way you tell the story it kind of sounds like your boyfriend cheating on you with your best friend (laughs) was almost like a proxy for how you dealt with the MS diagnosis. <laughs> totally. So like, was, was forgiving them, was that also forgiving the universe in a way for your yeah. situation and for your for for having MS? And- it seems ridiculous to say, but I think it's the reverse.
0: I think <laughs> I forgave the universe <laughs> before I forgave those individuals. The universe was elusive or big enough for me to not understand it totally and and so jealousy was maybe easier to deal with in that sense but um, so yeah i think i forgave the universe based on just good leadership advice that i got from my parents my sports psychologists and coaches and i dove into self help books i felt empowered like it was it was, it was in my control the ex boyfriend and the friend i felt like that was less in my control and and i, I had such a strong um, negative emotion that I rather than dealing with it I, I had to shut it out I had to just tuck it away put it behind me and, and put a brave face on and try not to to you know um, take a lower road or be catty or anything like that you know build an army of people against them you know I had to that was very hard to do but I, I hit a lot of those emotions until I felt empowered to take them head on
1: so how did you forgive the universe? Like what was the what was the advice that you received that made that possible or what? I mean, I've talked to some people who've gone through things like this and sometimes it alters your view of whether or not the universe is ultimately just. And I always wonder how people grapple with that question and how they reconcile themselves to that. I honestly think it's my parents telling me to focus on what I do have
0: because when I did start doing that, I started to open my eyes to what other people don't have that I have. So something as simple as, I have two loving parents. Um, most of my friends' parents were divorced. And then I would ask myself the question: would I rather be in, you know, um, this person's situation with their family life or have MS? And I swear, most of the time I would say, and I would rather have MS. Um, I even think of my mom's migraine headaches. I would rather have a mess than have to deal with the migraine headaches that she's dealt with for most of her life. Um, because I have such a big title behind my disease, I get a lot of attention and recognition for being a warrior or, or people feel sorry for me and they, they give me a lot of attention. But there's a lot of suffering and people who, you know, are struggling, but they don't get sort of the... The attention and therefore the support, um, and and the allowance to grieve, and it made me feel guilty to ever even feel bad in the first place. Because now I'm overwhelmed with all of this knowledge that maybe I was less aware of of how lucky I am and how beautiful life is and how beautiful my life is. I'm a girl who was raised in Beaumont, Alberta, Canada. Like it's a pretty pretty privileged start to life.
1: What would you say are the things that you gained from this experience?
0: I think maturity, <laughs> it made me ask um, big questions that, you know, before that I was, I was honestly like a dumb jock <laughs> I, in order to be, you know, sometimes be your best in sport. Sometimes it was a matter of just turning your brain off and just, you know, going with the whistle blows and stopping when the whistle, whistle blows. And it's just, you're kind of a robot. And, and life was, it was almost too, too easy. Like I, I jokingly describe my childhood and upbringing as, you know, riding in a field of daisies on unicorns while sucking a lollipop. Like, it was a beautiful upbringing.
1: It sounds, too, like one of the things that you gained from what you were describing earlier is a capacity, like, great capacity for gratitude and a capacity to understand, to be more empathetic and understand other people's suffering when you're talking about the migraines that... Your mother suffers. That yeah. seems to me like one of the real benefits of going through loss is that you remember how universal it is. <laughs> and you're, that, you're in and good that company. <laughs> you're in good I mean, you're in good company <laughs> because it's the it's the ultimate human experience. And yeah. like people unknown to us all the time, all around us, are going through sometimes extremely difficult situations. Yeah. And like the humility. And, and the kind of like the generosity almost to be able to see that and yeah like that yeah. I think that's one of the great values of suffering is that it allows you to connect with other people in their pain yeah in a way that you might not be able to otherwise you know I that reminds me of something
0: that was a really valuable lesson I learned through all this was I had to deal with the emotion of loneliness. I felt like, you know, especially when I was asking myself, why me? I felt like no one else could understand or ever be in my position. And so I just felt lonely. And I can't even remember who gave me this advice, but they asked me to label my emotions as I felt them. And then they broke, you know, had me write down these emotions and it it was loneliness, sadness, frustration, anger, all those things. And then he said, um, I think it was my sports psychologist and he was like, Well, do you know anyone else who knows these emotions? And I'm like, Well, yeah. He's like, Do you know anyone who doesn't know these emotions? <laughs> and I was like, No. And he's like, So do you think that maybe they can relate to your situation um, because of maybe a, a different um what it might be a different way that they've experienced those emotions, but they know what you're feeling. They know how you're feeling because they've been there before too. It's just looked different in their situation. Um, and for some reason that made me feel less lonely and it made me feel like I was in good company and that everyone in this world experience, experiences suffering and it looks different on paper but it doesn't mean that it's in a greater
1: lesson what you're feeling. I wanted to talk more about about the disease itself because mm-hmm. you still live with the specter of MS looms pretty large in your life mm-hmm. and Uh, We've never really talked about this, but I know, for example, that on a pretty regular basis, you're being, you're just being subjected to all sorts of tests and the threat of a relapse kind of hangs over you. Can you, can you talk a little bit about what that's like and how you cope with that?
0: I don't usually talk about that part because I... I started the Branch Out Neurological Foundation to, you know, and I and I become a spokesperson and a voice of hope for people with neurological disorders, and I still am and I hope I always will be. Um, but because of that, I don't I try purposefully not to focus on, you know, the hardships that I still have to deal with because I'm still human. Um and even though on um physically I've been relapse-free and medication-free for almost 10 years now and feeling really good. But I do have minor symptoms that come and go. I'm just very um, grateful that I have a health protocol that I've been able to develop without drugs that helps me sort of nip it in the butt before it turns into a relapse. And I have the body intuition from being an athlete to be able to understand, you know, what is MS fatigue versus fatigue, regular fatigue. Right. And and then having the, the resilience to take the MS fatigue really seriously and you know clear my calendar no matter how important my meetings were in that week and really focus on my, my healing and 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 paying attention to those symptoms. So yeah the I think the, the a tough part about this disease is is they say it's unpredictable, but um, most often it's progressed. And, you know, when, now that they're studying the brains after death of MS patients, they realize the brain has shrunk, you know, it's, it's, and, and there just is always progression. And so what I am frustrated with, with how our Western doctors approach the psychology behind a session with a with the patient is right now um, my MRI results don't look good. I'm, my brain and my spinal cord are ridden with lesions, Um, it leaves my doctors um, confused and a bit curious as to why I'm walking and doing as well as I am. And so I, to me, I'm like, well, that's exciting. I feel like, you know, I'm doing something right, and I want them to study me, but there's not really a protocol or a mechanism in place to study what I'm doing. Um, And non-pharmaceutical, which is, I mean, part of my purpose of starting Branch Out um, was to fill that gap. But Um, Most recently, it was just six months ago, I got more bad news about my MRI, I got another, yet another lesion in my brain, my lesions in my brain looked active, and judging from all of the patients that they've seen in their 30 years of experience, they're concerned for me and believe that my disease will progress and it's basically only a matter of time which makes me feel like a ticking time bomb. And I would get emotional when I would I would climb a mountain and get to the top and be like, is this gonna be the last time I get to climb to the top of the mountain? And all I had to do, and it took a lot of thinking and, and work and frustration and crying um, to realize that we, we don't have enough information in life to say that our brains aren't capable of healing. So why would we focus on the fact that I have all of these lesions and they kind of paint a picture, um, like the lesions are this dark cloud and they're eventually going to take over all of the healthy area of your brain. If we were to reverse that thinking, which is what I've been practicing for the last three months, is the healthy part of my brain takes over, you know, the, the part of the brain that's considered diseased. And there are anecdotal cases upon anecdotal cases out there that showcase... Um, the brain's capacity to heal itself. I mean, there's a scientist in the States who died in his 90s, donated his his brain to research. He um, was, you know, a functioning um, working guy at a very high level until his dying day, and they opened up his brain, and it's ridden with Alzheimer's. So it just goes to show, like, we have... I don't think we've tapped into our potential. So why are we painting a picture to our patients that the the bad stuff is taking over the good when we could just reverse that story and give the patient hope and give them empowerment to that they still have a chance and that they should still keep trying to, you know, eat their vegetables and get sleep and drink enough water and and care about their health.
1: The way that you describe this capacity... of of like mind over matter yeah by the way there's an aged dog laying next to us and so the occasional um like loud sighs and licks is not it's neither me nor crystal doing that um it's almost an act of faith that you're describing to be told by doctors who obviously carry a great deal of authority in speaking on these matters Mm -hmm. that reality is one way and to basically go on saying i choose not to believe that and I can manifest a different sort of reality. Mm-hmm. That's an incredible act, and I, and like to sustain that over a long period of time. And I say that admirably. Like I don't think that this is an, a form of self deception or something. I think that there is an incredible, not very well understood capacity through you know, call it faith, call it whatever you want how do you sustain that though? Like this is, this goes to what you were saying earlier that when you were told that you would never speed skate again, you're like, no, I think you're wrong. Like, is is this just because you're like, like a different person or where does this come from? Yeah.
0: I think I've always been a confident kid and, you know, I had this genetic advantage to be a really good speed skater growing up and that built a lot of my confidence. Um, and so it gave me that resilience to handle that news and to you know, have a whole team to support me, to make me think in, in positive ways and help get me back and focus on, you know, a goal like speed skating. But the other thing I like to remind people when I'm ever speaking or when people are asking me how I deal with my health And so I break it into three categories. Um, The the first one is healthy thinking. The next one's healthy eating. And lastly, healthy moving. I always get this question, what do you think is the most (laughs) important? And um, it's definitely the healthy thinking part. The healthy thinking, I mean, it's easy to just say, think positive or think healthy thoughts or people will describe me as a very positive person. But that's that's a practice, like speed skating was a practice and then it gives me the opportunity and the space to rebuild my confidence and start reminding myself of again what do i what do i have as opposed to what don't i have what can i do as opposed to what can i do it forces me to go back to what are my goals in life what are what am i trying to achieve that stuff is so motivating for me and and i think it's motivating for for most humans if not everyone to have a goal to work towards and to have that reminder to um, that you know there are good things in life um, and it can be very very simple things
1: i can see why you were a really good athlete because it's it's like it's the application of on the one hand what would be physical stamina in one context you seem to embody also a great deal of like spiritual stamina um, i've never been described that way but <laughs> <laughs> well that's i think that is what it takes yeah. but going to to your point about the way that doctors will communicate to patients about this. I imagine that, yeah, if if you're telling patients that you have a disease that is going to be degenerative and it's only a matter of time and you're taking time bomb, to some extent that has to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think so. I think so. Not
0: only that, but the doctor who knows all and plays God because that's how uh, the system has sort of built it. And it's no, it's no fault to the doctor because most most doctors see this as a, as a problem. Yeah, we're not denigrating doctors here. Definitely yeah. not. <laughs> they're our friends. <laughs> they save lives. Um, but it's, it's just that, you know, they're in a system that I think could be worked on from a psychological perspective. I think there are some best practices around the world of how we treat illness, how we mentally prepare people to handle it. So when I was sick for the first time and out, I did everything I could to get back into skating. Um, I raced my first competition and I described the the crowd as, you know, one of the loudest crowds I've ever heard because they were just excited to see me back skating Um, and I cried myself to sleep that night because my times were now so slow as compared to before I I was sick and I'm this competitive person and, you know, I'm full of jealousy of, you know, watching my competitors go and they didn't have a disease so all that, I went to bed with all that stress and the next morning, literally overnight, my entire left side of my body stopped functioning. And then I decided, okay, I'm going to go on the daily drug injection that my doctors recommended. I'm going to be extra aggressive with my, um, with my diet and um, my acupuncture, body talk, unicorn hair supplements. I, you know, sorry, basically... What? What? <laughs> Honestly, I tried everything. <laughs> Conventional, unconventional. Honestly, like if it was witchcraft or not, like I was trying it because I was eyes wide open to what could possibly heal, heal me. And I have no ego with this because I, I feel very vulnerable and, and desperate to do anything. I remember begging my neurologist to give me stem cell treatment. And she's just like, you're not at a bad enough state to risk death um, as a treatment. Um, But I I really wanted to try everything and I did. I got back skating, but it didn't last very long until I went into relapse again, losing feeling in my left leg as my third relapse. And I remember talking to my coach Arno and he said, Crystal, he's like, um, and at this point I'm I'm in hysterics, I'm crying and, and so frustrated and embarrassed and all the things. And he said, Crystal, he's like, you play the piano, what happens if you played all the notes at one time? And I was like, "Uh, noise? And he said, exactly. So what does it take to make a melody with those notes? And I didn't understand what he was getting at, so I was like, I don't know. And he said, it's the space between the notes that make the melody, and it's going to be the space between your training programs and everything that you're doing that's going to create your performance in sport and, and for your health. And, and I felt like that was a big aha moment in my life. I felt like the weight of the world was taken, was, was off, and I could breathe. And then it, it forced me to think differently about... I went from adopting the, the attitude of more is more and just do everything you possibly can to heal yourself, like train double, do everything. Um, to this is basically this
1: is like the denial stage of grief. Right? Yeah. Totally. To grief. <laughs> yeah, and you just try everything. <laughs> try everything and just and yeah. well, yeah, I mean you described it as like an extremely aggressive attempt to just get back to what you were and who you were and not accepting. Yeah. That your life had changed. Totally. And then it was after
0: sort of learning that and accepting, even going to worst case scenario and understanding that worst case scenario is, is not bad. And especially relative to everything that happens in this world and other people's lives, I would sleep more and I would give myself forgiveness if I um, couldn't go to training one day because I felt a symptom. And it, and it allowed me to be more mindful and patient with my disease. And I became friends with my disease and my disease became my coach and it became my trainer and and it empowered me to to live a little bit differently and now I call it the space between. And I describe the space between as the things that often get overlooked or taken for granted or the subtleties that require additional patience or thoughtfulness to achieve. Um, You know, what are the space between, you know, steps that it takes to get to a goal? Um, and I that requires a lots of time to think about and, and practice. And I think that's what makes some an athlete go from good to great. I think it's what makes a CEO go from good to great. I think it's what makes a human go from good to great.
1: Did you ever go through despair and hopelessness? Or did you skip that part entirely? <laughs> I,
0: I went through that after my when I was first diagnosed in my and then my boyfriend cheated on me with my how boyfriend. How did... By the way...
1: <laughs> like, that, that was, that was <laughs> how, pretty rock bottom okay, for how me. Did, how, did you, how did you find out? Like, how did that actually... Because this is the part of your story that is... Most of us can't relate to being elite athletes. But I think a lot of us can relate to being cheated on. Yeah. Like, how, did, um, how did you actually find out?
0: It was more through... Um, well, first of all, f- women are intu- intuitive. I mean, I think all humans are intuitive, but there's something like when you know, you know something's up. And then you find out the stories of them hanging out and then them flirting at competitions. Then all of a sudden, you know, I break up with them or he breaks up with me. I don't
1: even know what happened. And then they're dating. This this is the part of the story, though, that I... <laughs> like, it's, it's hard to fathom because basically you're going through a real... Physical trial on the one hand, mm-hmm. you're grap- grappling with the possibility that you may never skate again, or maybe you were just purely in denial about that. But yeah. um, that this major part of your identity has been taken from you, or potentially been taken from you, yeah. and you're reevaluating like the whole story of your life that you mm-hmm. had been envisioning at the very moment when you really most need your friends. And, and this and like it was your boyfriend and you said your best friend and like it really yeah, was your best friend you guys of, were one of my close. best friend. we were yeah. very close yeah I think that's what
0: was so hard about the whole social situation was you know it, it's not breaking up with her it was break it felt like the whole family was was in a very awkward position and she's a wonderful person there's a reason I was friends with her um she had you know she had her friends and you know, they felt awkward and they didn't want to choose sides and I didn't want to make anyone choose sides. Um, But eventually and sort of naturally, you choose to be with, you know, the ones that are either um, going to be around in sport, um, because I was out of sport for a while there, or, you know, you're, you're better friends with her and so you remain friends with her and you kind of stick with them through thick and thin. And so we were both building these stories of, you know, right and wrong and what, you know, the real situation was. But I mean, I think naturally because of the the drama of my situation, people had a lot of empathy for me and I tried to behave in a way that was mature so that I wasn't trying to create enemies for her. Um, And it wasn't because I wasn't mad. Um, I think I just knew deep down that that wasn't the right way to go. And I had, I had bigger things I needed to focus on, like my health and I couldn't have those kinds of distractions, but, I mean, that was like a whole social um, experiment because it's, it's about families breaking up. Yeah, it was very, very confusing and weird. <laughs>
1: um, can you tell me about
0: how Branch Out started? Through my personal journey of going on the medication, trying it, um, and being told, you know, I'd probably never speed skate again. But once I, try, I started trying everything, you know, learned about the space between and took all these different ways of healing. And then by 2009, so I was diagnosed in 2005. By 2009, I made my way back to an elite level in speed skating um, and I qualified for the trials for the 2010 Olympics, which was awesome. And I went into the pre Olympic season of training and overnight I lost vision in my left eye. Um, which is a common symptom of MS. I know, it's annoying.
1: <laughs> uh, <I> was, <laughs> annoying wasn't the word I was going to use for it. <laughs> well,
0: it was annoying because I had the Olympics to try and qualify for and I lost
1: vision in my left eye. That, that's incredible. I mean, the, it's incredible just the fact I didn't actually know that you had returned to an elite level of competition after being told that you would never speed skate again. Mm-hmm. And then you're like on the cusp of... Yeah getting back onto this path in your life and proving everyone, you know, proving the doctor is wrong. And yeah. And then you have, and then you relapse again. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: I mean, that was a, a fairly significant relapse because I literally couldn't see the light of the day through my left eye. And so when you're in relapse, even though I lost vision, it it came with a lot of fatigue and then all of the emotional drama of, of that. And It's kind of funny because I, as my vision was regaining, um, like a couple of weeks later, um, it it hurt, and I, my eye was very sensitive, and so I had to wear an eye patch. And my friend called me, and she was like, "Hey, um, um, check out this picture." And she sends me a picture. It was probably Lady Gaga or something, and they had this like very fancy flamboyant, um, eye patch and had like a big feather on it. And she, and I was like, Oh, funny, cute. Like, thanks for sending. Um, and then she's like, what are you doing tonight? Um, and I was like, nothing. She's like, do you want a barbecue? Sure. She comes over with, you know, barbecue food, um, and then glitter and glue and eye patches. And we had what we called the first eye patch party or patch party. And we decorated them. And I told my mom, and of course, Again, because mom is feeling my pain five hundred times worse than I am, and I call her and I was like, "Guess what happened today? Like Toby brought this over and we made decorated eye patches." And she said, "Oh, that's funny." She's like, "MS does shave your head and or sorry, cancer shaves her head and MS does eye patches." And I was like, "Mom, that's a really good idea." And she's like, "What do you mean?" And I was like, "I gotta go." So I called my uh, my boyfriend now husband, um, and we literally drove to all the pharmacies in Northwest Calgary, and we collected all of these eye patches, and then I called my friends and set up shop at my my friend's deli, <laughs> and we literally um, glittered up some eye patches, and while we were doing this, we were developing a plan that was then called the Crystal Patches Campaign, um, keeping an eye out for MS, and I was able to raise money by having a patch party where we sold these eye patches for $20 each and people would wear them all day on Crystal Patches Day. And then at the end of the day, we had the patch party and we raised a lot of money, like $30,000. And I only needed $20,000 because I wanted to pursue some alternative treatments um, and, and therapies and doctors that would cost a lot of money. Um, and because I had the extra $10,000 from the night, I got to do the coolest thing I think I've ever done in my life, which was um, call my f- my new friend. I had only met him a couple times and he was debilitating. He was diagnosed with MS the same time as me. His name's Ali. Um, but unfortunately, his path looked different than mine and he wasn't able to recover from his relapses. So he was debilitated um, significantly. And so I was able to give $10,000 to him. And here I am a struggling athlete who never has, you know, that much money. And I was able to gift someone $10,000, which was maybe my like first, it's like the foreshadowing to my addiction to wanting to give money away. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, long story short, I was able to do alternative treatments and really take the, I, well, I decided to go off all of my drugs because I figured, okay, I got more tests done after I lost vision in my in my eye, and I was told, oh wow, your your disease is progressing, more lesions. It's looking more like progressive MS. Like they were predicting that I would be in a wheelchair in two years. They recommended much more aggressive drugs. the The side effects, when you looked at them, they looked worse than the disease itself in some cases. Um, and then I figured, okay, well, if I'm going to be in a wheelchair in two years. I've got nothing to lose and I'm never going to know whether it's this like non-conventional stuff or the, or the drugs that I'm on if I'm doing both of those things at once. So I decided, okay, I'm either going to go off my drugs or um, I'm going to do all drugs or all convent- unconventional treatments, which is really a combination of the healthy thinking, eating, moving. And yeah, you look at the side effects of the the drugs and it's like, um, potential liver damage, flu-like symptoms, death, like the list was like a <laughs> scroll of horrible things. And then I looked at the side effects of the unconventional stuff, and it was like better energy, a better sleep, a six-pack. Really no like <laughs> really no downsides. Yeah, that. and so for me I was quite confident in my decision, but for many people, especially the loved ones around me, like that was very scary because I was going against my doctor's recommendations. To go off all of my drugs. So I went off the drugs. I raised money for myself and Allie so that we could get alternative treatments. And eight months later, I came just a few spots off the Canadian Olympic team in speed skating. So I got back to elite level again. And then I retired from sport and I was starting this new idea based on my personal experience I realized that there were some gaps in the system that I wanted to fill and that was the need for more credibility, um, scientific validity, and money and support for some of the less conventional approaches to healing neurological disorders. And I say neurological disorders and not just MS because we might be losing out on opportunities of how to treat MS if we box MS in as a one disease and you have only MS researchers to studying MS. If it's siloed in that. Yeah, know, like yeah. That. So I figured, you know, whatever we're going to learn, there's so much we need to learn about the brain still that we need to, to really open up our our thinking and, and then look at, you know, what we learn about in concussion. That might lead to some answers in Alzheimer's or MS or depression or ADD. Um, basically, if it had to do with the brain, that's the kind of the area of focus that I wanted to dedicate the rest of my life to. I learned a lot about my values at this point because I really struggled with the idea of retiring from sport. And my psychologist, he's like, why don't you write, let's figure out what your values are. So we figured out what my values are and then I had to make a list of all the reasons why I should and then all the reasons why I shouldn't quit speed skating. And he had me write the list and I kind of came back to him with the lists really proud to show him how hard this decision was because the lists were even. It was like 20 points on either side. And I just wanted to be like, see, like it's really hard. (laughs) And then he took my values and he said, okay, I want you to take these lists home and look at your values. And I want you to cross off anything that doesn't fit your values. And that was a very eye-opening experience because some of the reasons why I wanted to stay was I wanted to make the Olympics be that girl who makes the Olympics with MS. I wanted to overcome those odds. A lot of the reasons why I wanted to stay was had a lot to do with my ego. Well, inconvenient to me, I put egoless as one of my values. <laughs> <laughs> so I basically had to quit speed skating. But on, in all honesty, it was my values ended up being I understood why. You take the time to figure out what your personal values are because they're a guideline for any hard decision in life. And they make what seems like the the gray, wavy, dotted line um, decision really black and white. Um, So I I decided to retire from speed skating, start the Branch Out Foundation to literally branch out and start an entire new field of study. Um, the only problem is up at that point my background is skating in circles and not neuroscience. And so I learned <laughs> I learned the very valuable skill of outsourcing your life and also playing your strengths. And so I looked at okay, what are my strengths? And you know, I was I was often known to organize um team events, whether it's um a team bike ride for training, um And I was also known to throw the best year-end party in speed skating um, every year. So I figured, okay, well, why don't I start with a a bike tour and with a kick-ass party at the end? (laughs) And that's what I did. And that's how I started the Branch Out Foundation. And it's, I mean, in our first year, we raised 50 grand at the bike tour to now fast forward. We're going into our 10th year and we'll have raised over $3 million um, from community efforts and individual Donations and small corporate donations,
1: and, and a lot of what you're doing is you're seeding and you're you're funding um, scientific research into these kinds of non-pharmaceutical treatments. Exactly, yeah.
0: So we focus
1: on the the
0: field of study that we created. It's called NeuroCam, and it stands for Neuroscience and Complementary and Alternative Modalities, which in in more simple terms and easier to say aloud is non-pharmaceutical and innovative tech. And I say innovative tech because I think technology in science is so fascinating and it's going to increase the efficiency and effectiveness of some of these non-pharmaceutical therapies that we're seeing huge strides towards making a big difference in various neurological disorders. So we've funded over 81 research projects across the country now. Um, We've developed an entire field of study. We're helping reduce the stigma for non-pharmaceutical neuroscience being scientifically valid. So it's been a wild ride and exciting and I always feel like it's just the beginning even though we're
1: going in our 10th year. (laughs) If you could somehow get a do-over in life and you had an opportunity as an 18-year-old knowing what you know now to choose between carrying on without this diagnosis um, or choosing the life that you've had, which one would you pick?
0: If I had the same... Family and situation that I had in both those situations, I hundred percent would choose the route that is real today. Um, having that diagnosis, it's been it's my my friend now, and it was it's like my coach in life. It really taught me so much. Um, it t- taught me about humility. I mean, I was peeing my pants because I lost bladder control when I was a teenager. that doesn't teach you humility, <laughs> I don't know what does. But I mean, that's one of so many lessons. And the skills that I learned from um, my diagnosis helped me perform in sport, um, especially in the mental side of things. And it also helped me build a career. And, and now I, I have the opportunity to impact other people with neurological disorders, which there's no other job in the world, I feel it is more privileged. So,
1: yeah. Well, thank you so much. I think we'll stop there. Um, I know it's kind of cliche almost to say this, but listening to you, I am, I am like, I'm actually inspired and I don't normally say that. I imagine that a large part of why you've been so successful in combating your disease does come down to the fact that through all of this, you maintained an extremely gracious, like magnanimous attitude toward life and I think that's probably one of the most important things to be taken from this. It's nothing short, like it is incredibly impressive, not just what you accomplished physically, um, getting back to an elite level of competition, not once but twice after relapse, um, and not what you've done professionally, but I think more than anything, it's the person that you are in the midst of that. So thank you so much, that means, Especially a lot coming from
0: you because I, I think you're one of those resilient people that I admire in my life. And I think, I think these stories are contagious. and I, it's an honor to be one of the, one of many of these great stories.